0: Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. I'm very excited today to be joined by Emily Birnbaum. She is a tech policy reporter at Protocol. She covers federal government regulation of the tech industry with a focus on antitrust, privacy, and politics. Today, she's here to talk with me about tech and the incoming Biden administration and what we can expect. And uh, Emily, it's great to have you on. How are you?
1: I am very well. Um, I am coming to you after my uh, publications first Zoom holiday party. And it was nice and a success and it's snowing outside. So I'm in the holiday spirit. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you.
0: That's excellent. I have not yet done a holiday Zoom party. Is it awkward? I mean, a, a holiday party is already awkward. I could imagine that being even more so.
1: No, I, I kind of liked it. We did um, two truths and a lie um, and all tried to make it work and laughed through it. And I, I think it was a bonding experience. That's Good. Well, yet. that's
0: sporting of you. <laughs> um as I said to you a couple of days ago, you know, I'm just so happy to have you on. You cover such a breadth of topics and you do it with real quality. I, I just, I'm very impressed by your work and I would encourage all the listeners who are interested in following the Tech Beat to check you out. Um, and I, I couldn't think of a better person to talk about what we have to look forward to.
1: Thank you. Um, that's very nice. I think it's,
0: it's yes. such a broad topic. Um, there's so much going on in the tech space, so we're definitely not gonna cover anything resembling everything, but there's just, even just within your beat, you've covered so much good stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to dive in. The, I think the first sort of headline area that's certainly been in the news a lot recently are the antitrust cases. Um, and I'm definitely curious to hear your thoughts on those and where they're going and how they might change. Uh, with the change of administration. The Google suit you've written about, um, the Department of Justice's lawsuit against Google, as you've mentioned, it's pretty narrow. It's limited to search. Uh, It focuses on agreements Google has made with Apple for placement of its search engine. Do you think the Biden administration will expand the suit? Possibly to include AdSense or maybe expand the remedies that are sought, seeking a wider breakup of Google? Or are we likely to continue to see a, a pretty precision lawsuit?
1: Yeah, I think that, first of all, it's a little bit premature to say because so much of this hinges on who he decides to run the Department of Justice and the Antitrust Division, you know, like personnel is policy and uh, vice versa. And I think it's really going to be contingent on who that person is and what kind of background they come from. But I think, you know, we are obviously living in a time when there's a lot of progressive pressure to do more about the um, concentration of corporate power. Tech giants have posed these really novel, interesting questions. Biden's campaign pledged multiple times to take on the power of big tech, you know, whatever that looks like. So I think given the political atmosphere, we can safely assume they'll expand the case. I mean. First, we know that a coalition of states led by Nebraska and Colorado this week are going to bring their own Google search related suit. They intend to try to consolidate that with the DOJ suit. Um, so it's going to be broader in that way. It's going to then involve, you know, things like self-preferencing. Um, and then I think um, under Biden, it's probably safe to hypothesize that they'll um, continue that, um, th- they'll continue that breadth. And, try to be as ambitious as possible.
0: I think the most ambitious approach that could be taken is some um, some kind of amendment that tries to make size itself a problem. Um, do you think there's any chance the lawsuit will, will kind of swing for the fences and seek um, try to make some kind of case that that markets need to have a particular structure or that redundant competitors need to exist?
1: So I think that's a really interesting question. And I know that it was one that um, you said you were going to pose. I mean, you know, I guess just my understanding of our current interpretation of antitrust laws is that you can't just say that big is bad and big is a problem. I think that obviously there are a lot of ways to get at that in certain ways, um, you know, with the most expansive um, interpretations of the law. Um, So I don't know if I see them making that argument exactly, but I I guess I'm thinking a lot about, um, you know, this how wide-ranging the Facebook complaint is from the states and how ambitious they were and how they tried to, you know, make certain arguments about privacy as a consumer harm. Um, so I, I think that you're right to say maybe they'll try to do some ambif- ambitious and novel and broad things. I don't know if it will look exactly like that.
0: It, it would certainly, it would seem it would require overturning uh, Precedent, and that if you wanted to go that far, you would probably be better off going the congressional route, picking up the House antitrust report and, and, and going down that way. Transitioning to the Facebook suit. Uh, one thing I find interesting in putting the Google suit next to the Facebook suit is, and I, uh, I can only speak roughly here, but in the Google suit, you have pretty obvious Uh, market size. Google is very dominant in search. Maybe not as much anti-competitive behavior, evidence of that. Facebook, on the other hand, you have less evidence of market power. I mean, there's TikTok, there's Twitter, there are other brands out there that really can compete with Facebook. But you have some pretty sketchy emails that Suggest an actual anti competitive strategy uh, uh, snuffing out competitors, so if you could combine the two suits you 'd have a killer knocked at antitrust suit, but each one kind of has some strengths and weaknesses uh, that 's sort of my take what, what do you see when you look at the Facebook case and what do you think of it cases?
1: Cool. So I love talking about this, about the question of TikTok and the question of other popular social media platforms. So one of the ambitious things they're doing in the Facebook suit is they're trying to create a market definition that excludes TikTok, YouTube, and other social media platforms, like the definition of the market that they say Facebook monopolizes is personal social networking. So it specifically relies on, you know, having access to the social graph, to your friends and families, you know, to the particular kinds of um, advertising that Facebook does, Um, and you know, definition of market is always, I think, the biggest obstacle, um, and the first challenge of any antitrust suit, um, and they will probably face, um, a good amount of back and forth as they try to convince a judge that TikTok, you know, is not a competitor, YouTube, and, and, you know, more importantly, that YouTube is not a competitor, um, so I, I guess, um, I, I, it's sort of yet to be seen if this will be compelling to a judge, you know, it depends on their own um, opinion. Uh, Yeah, and, but I don't know if it, you know, means that it's not strong, you know, like, with the Google case, they actually also have an ambitious market definition, you know, they are defining, um, you know, they're, they're saying that, general search is distinct from specialized search. So then Google and Amazon aren't direct competitors, Um, you know, and that is like equally narrow and probably equally controversial. Um, So it's kind of like we have to get past that hurdle to really know what will come next.
0: These lawsuits are so uh, innovative is not quite a fair word to the people bringing them. I don't think they'd say that, but they, they are in new ground simply because markets change and these are new kinds of companies. And so it, it's it's interesting. There is a degree. I, this is probably putting it a little bit too cynically, but that personnel maybe policy in the lawsuits, the judge you get could have a big effect in in these areas, as you as you note.
1: Yeah. No. Absolutely. And that's what's so distinct about antitrust in the U.S. is so much of it goes through the courts, you know. And I think that also is part of the reason why we see this big push for changing uh, for changing laws alongside these court cases. Because sometimes, you know, like we're, we're sort of like running up against the limits of antitrust laws in some ways with these cases, or so we're really pushing the boundaries of it. So then it, and then it returns to Congress. Like, okay, can Congress expand the laws?
0: Well, part of what you mentioned, so Facebook, there's a very particular market definition. And that market definition is of sort of a mature, maybe you could say one-stop shop social media network. But it, it, that's hard to build. Those things don't pop out, uh, up out of nowhere. So one thing I'm very interested to know is what's the government's vision of success in the Facebook case? That lawsuit ends in government victory. They get the remedy they want. But then looking out over the social media landscape, what is it supposed to look like because of the lawsuit?
1: Well, so so much of the Facebook lawsuit is about acquiring potential Rivals or competitors, um, and I think that they're trying to draw. You know, they're trying to draw a hard line. And um, specifically, the FTC has asked for or says that they're going to ask for an unwinding of the Instagram and WhatsApp mergers. And the point of that is sort of to get at the heart in many ways of the Silicon Valley business model, which is acquiring as many promising startups as possible, um, especially ones that could pose a threat to your business. But they're saying that in a healthy marketplace, these large dominant players who benefit from network effects, um, you know, who benefit from getting more and more people on their platform um, in a healthy marketplace, they would not be able to acquire potential challengers. Like there would be constant innovation and there wouldn't be these barriers to entry. Like right now we live in a world where trying to directly challenge Facebook um, is a very, uh, it, it's a tough challenge, you know, like most people, like if you, you present that idea to most investors, they would be very skeptical of it. Um, and so I think part of the idea is to, um, or at least this is what the government says, is to ensure that there's not this sort of like um, buy and, and, you know, this buying mentality over an innovation mentality.
0: Okay. Um, interesting. I, and then the other aspect in terms of remedy, we definitely see bipartisan hostility to Facebook. It seems to be a rare point of bipartisan agreement. Um, again, this is speculative, but the Biden administration comes in. Do you think they'll look at the FTN? And again, they don't the FTC is an independent agency, but will the Biden administration look at that lawsuit and put their thumbs up and go great and just sort of not touch it? Or do you think there will be pressure from the Biden administration to uh, change it in any way?
1: I mean, I, I just think it's so interesting. Like, I think everybody has to understand like how deep the animosity towards Facebook runs in the Democratic Party. Like I, I don't, you know, it's been like kind of an amazing evolution to watch over the last four years, like from for Facebook to go from, you know, Um, I I think even in 2016, it was was sort of starting to be seen as more of like a corporate player, maybe like, oh, maybe Facebook is one of the bad guys. But like, it's just gotten worse and worse, like this, this personal, like political animus. Um, And I, I think Biden... He hasn't talked a lot about most tech policy issues like like I have spent so much time looking through everything he's ever said with his own mouth or on his campaign website about tech. One of the only things he's really opined on very aggressively is Facebook. And he doesn't like Mark Zuckerberg and he doesn't like the Facebook business model. Um, And he thinks Facebook enables disinformation. Um, And I think in those words, we can see that he's pledging to do something about it. What that looks like, like you know, do I think that Biden is the type to put out an executive order, you know, saying the FCC should change Section 230, for example? Like, no, I don't really see that happening. But I do see if you're asking, like, put his thumb on the scales somewhat, that that animosity will bleed out in policy in some way during Biden. I really do think so. Um, And it's sort of like yet to be seen how that will look, because as you said, FCC is an independent agency, and they're just going to continue following this. But, you know, it matters if... um, uh, Rohit Chopra, or if uh, Becca Slaughter is the head of the FTC, and and they've made it clear that they are very supportive of this endeavor.
0: Well, one other thing tech related that uh, President Elect Biden has discussed shameless segue is Section Two Hundred and Thirty, and we couldn't we couldn't do a tech overview without touching on Section Two Hundred and Thirty. Where do we stand with the whole uh, Trump? NDAA, veto, 230 repeal writer, brouhaha.
1: This was such an insane lame duck episode. Like the lame duck, you know, like before the lame duck, everyone's like, you know, things get crazy, like, you know, people start doing stuff that they've been trying to do for years, just cramming it through. But then when this happened, I was like, Oh, my God, for some reason, I'm still surprised. Um, Well, and where you know, and where we stand right now is that it seems that Congress has sort of stood up to him. So he said, I am going to veto the NDAA if it doesn't repeal Section 230. And Congress said, well, we're just going to get to a veto-proof majority because this is defense spending, you know? And, like, like you have to think of the po- the politics, like, you know, uh republicans are trying to hold their majority there is a pair of runoff elections in georgia you know where support for the military runs deep they really don't want to be seen as holding up defense spending like you know hundreds of billions of dollars in defense spending um over this kind of esoteric internet law um and i you know at this point Uh, The House and Senate have both um, voted in favor of the NDAA with veto-proof majorities. Now we're just sort of waiting for Trump to veto it. I've talked to a lot of lobbyists and people who are watching this space. They really think he's going to go through with it and it's going to go back to Congress and they're probably just going to, you know, they're going to vote the same and it's going to pass. It's kind of a pointless episode.
0: What else is is new? I am kind of picturing the, the members of the Armed Services Committee some staff are saying, well, the president, he's, he's going to veto, okay, why? Section 230, what's that? I, I mean, it's so yeah. in our faces, those of us who are in this world, but it, it just could not have less to do with defense. And um, I, I see these tweets from the president where he, he basically just takes section 230 and the words national security, and he just mashes them together and yeah, exactly. I don't see the connection. It's lost on me, at least.
1: It, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And then he had a couple of Republicans on Capitol Hill repeating that, like Lindsey Graham was saying it. Um, uh, but it's it's such a funny point about armed services. Like, I think there was probably sort of an overwhelming, like, blitz of not lobbying exactly, but sort of like offers to educate from tech trade groups, like from tech companies during that week towards Senate and House Armed Services saying, hey, we know what Section 230 is, it's important to us. And Armed Services was basically, this is what I've heard, was basically like, okay, good, you know, good to know, but it doesn't matter because we're not letting anything blow up this vital bill, you know, like there's nothing that, that would, that we would want to incorporate at this 11th hour, you know, Um, so... It's just a waiting game for the veto, I guess.
0: Well, assuming assuming he vetoes and assuming it gets overridden, then uh, President Biden, January 20th, 2021, will have nothing to quote unquote fix. But on the other hand, to the extent he's spoken on it, uh, Joe Biden has just been uniformly negative about Section 230. Do you expect that to be his... Position once he's actually in the Oval Office.
1: So, like I was saying before, like I do think that he is going to, um, you know, maybe try to work with Congress, try to work with the FCC in, in certain ways on Section two hundred and thirty related issues. If not, like him himself, then you know, obviously his legislative staff. Um, but uh, I don't see him being as aggressive using executive power as Trump. So like, like there was, there's been some speculation about like, okay, what's the future of the section 230, you know, executive order at the FCC. And some people I know have said, well, Democrats, if they wanted to, could sort of like repackage this thing and and change the language to make it more Democrat friendly and, you know, sort of appease more democratic um, ideals um, or, you know, democratic wishes around section 230. I don't know if I really see that happening. Like, I think Joe Biden is someone who really uh, respects Congress and you know, he thinks of himself deeply as a senator and that's sort of where I see the energy going.
0: Well, that's interesting that you say that uh, a President Biden probably won't go the, the FCC route or you know, put pressure on the FCC to act or do uh, take independent action of course, as all of us who follow this issue know all too well, if he tries to be collaborative and leave it in Congress, we may still have a stalemate that drags out indefinitely, since, of course, we have two parties who are agreed about amending Section 230, but in total disagreement about what those amendments would look like.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Like, especially um, if we still have a divided Congress after January. Um, I think that we're just going to see more of the same kind of political theater and, you know, partisan bickering over the future of 230 and. Um, there are some bipartisan proposals on the table that are kind of interesting. So um, specifically, I'm thinking about the PACT Act, which is from Brian Schatz and John Thune. Um, and it, it's sort of like a lighter touch approach to Section 230. It focuses mainly on transparency. Zuckerberg, when he came before Congress said, you know, I think I could get behind some of these transparency provisions and some of these 230 proposals, which seemed specifically geared towards the pact act um but at this point i guess i don't even believe that there's political will to really come to the table and try to get something bipartisan done on 230 because the parties are so as you said they're just so far apart and they feel that they can win so many political points just by beating this drum and by continuing to um to use 230 as a cudgel to talk about uh you know the power of big tech so I guess I just see us sort of continuing along this same road where nothing substantive is really getting done, but we're still talking about it all the time.
0: Well, that's discouraging. I, I for one, have had my fill of congressional hearings where Congress people are using it to get on, to get their snippet on cable television. Um, It would be nice if they would move it into a a substantive, more substantive discussion. One area to transition again, since we could talk about Section 230 all day. Yeah. (laughs) uh, One area where the Biden administration may act within the executive branch, as you've pointed out, is the gig economy and the Department of Labor uh, taking a close look at the employment status of what are mostly now independent contractors for companies like Uber and DoorDash and whatnot. Uh, Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So I, I thought to myself, like when it became clear that Biden was going to be president and he was probably going to have a divided Congress um, you know, I thought, okay, well, that means a lot of energy is going to go into regulations, and it's going to go to the federal agencies. And one of the most powerful federal agencies is the Department of Labor. They have a lot of jurisdiction, and they have a lot of ability to, you know, make rules, to sue, to, um, you know, take unilateral action. And um, you know, one of the most important and hottest issues um, for uh, labor and for um, And and for unions right now is gig work and, you know, how to ensure that gig workers get equal benefits to full time employees and um, the Department of Labor has power to do something here. So they have a power to make rules or they have power to um, sue Uber. on the grounds that they are not, um, that they're misclassifying their workers. And I think, um, you know, during his campaign, Biden clearly put himself on the side of labor on this issue. You know, he said that he stands by the ABC test in California. He said he's a supporter of AB5. Um, and all these things taken together, um, you know, lead us, to a place where we should really watch the Department of Labor and whoever, you know, whatever union friendly um, labor secretary he puts in there is probably going to make this a priority because it's a priority um, in the country.
0: So I take it from what you've heard, um, no one sort of with the power to do anything at the federal level is too phased by the vote in California. Uh, Uber, in effect, got itself out of AB 5 through uh, a proposition and. Um, I I suppose you you could describe that in in one of two ways. You could say, well, that's a very blue state and maybe that's a warning. Or you could say, well, Uber did spend a massive amount of money on advertising there. And I I take it that the folks you're talking to are are pretty settled that it's the latter is the way to view it.
1: Yeah. No, I I mean, I think that's, that's definitely true. I think it's kind of interesting because I've had conversations with like gig work lobbyists, you know, sort of posing this question, like, are you afraid of a Biden administration? Like, do you do you really believe that? um, That is, you know, that is NLRB, that is Labor Department are going to do the thing that you've spent so much money to avoid. Um, And, you know, I think the answer is yes. But the answer is also that they have some that there is some optimism about Congress and um, there there's actually been a lot of like interesting bipartisanship among like moderates in both parties on the issue of gig work and whether we need to carve out you know that third way that California's discussing right now, you know, whether maybe there is room for reform to get through even a divided Congress on gig work. Right now, I'm very skeptical that that could happen. But it seems like that's probably where lobbyists are going to put their energy, because, you know, it seems like this stuff with the DOL and NLRB is sort of like set in stone, or um, it seems pretty clear that that's the direction they're heading.
0: Well, the final topic I was hoping to touch on, and it's, it's taking up the rear here, but Quite possibly the most important topic we're going to discuss long term is artificial intelligence. You wrote a very interesting piece about the bipartisan resolution put forth by representatives Will Hurd and Robin Kelly on uh, basically trying to put forth a national strategy on AI. Uh, could you tell us about the resolution and what its status is?
1: Yeah, so this resolution has been a long time in the making. like. Will Hurd and Robin Kelly have been working with the Bipartisan Policy Center for years at this point um, on research and, you know, looking into ways that Democrats and Republicans can come together to agree, we need to put significant money into the future of artificial intelligence. You know, like we know in China, there's a pretty unified strategy to, you know, Um, to spend enormous sums of money and to advance their AI um, innovation. And in the U S you know, it's just more fragmented and and it's, it's more bottom up than top down. And so this resolution um, which is so hard fought is really just that. It's a resolution, but it's a framework that the next Congress can take up. You know, there are six committees that have jurisdiction over various parts of um, AI policy, which is kind of a ridiculous situation if you know how Congress works. Um, and so this resolution helped establish, you know, what piece of the puzzle each of those committees could work on, um, what, uh, you know, what are some starting places for, um bipartisan policy on AI, you know, what are the big loopholes that the government needs to help fill? So it sort of ranges from very specific, you know, like, okay, we need to get more access for researchers to these specific supercomputers or whatever, um, to sort of more vague, like maybe we should um, use tax incentives to get private companies on board with certain kinds of AI research, uh, stuff like that. So the resolution is more just; it tries to carve out some paths forward because AI policy is really complicated and actually get very partisan very quickly. Um, so I, I think mostly what's safe to say is that the government is going to be spending an increasing amount of money on AI research and R&D in this space. Um, and when it comes to things like ethics or when it comes to things like um, racial bias and algorithms, things can be a lot harder for our government to actually get stuff done on that. But at least we know there's going to be money flowing, and there's going to be more and more of an emphasis on it um, every year. And I I think that's been true under Trump, and it'll continue to be true under Biden.
0: That is a a really astute observation that AI can get partisan very quickly. You had another article recently about funding being upped uh, for AI in the National Defense Authorization Act. And I'm wondering often numbers get thrown around and everybody thinks more spending on worthy cause X and everybody kind of gives a cheer. Where's all that money going? I mean, even if AI is a good idea and something to to support, you you know, making slush funds is never a very good idea. Could you tell us more about that money and if it's earmarked in a certain way and, and, and what's going on with that?
1: Yeah, totally. So that was originally introduced um, earlier this year as the Industries of the Future Act. So it was um, bipartisan legislation to come out of the Senate Commerce Committee introduced by Senator Wicker originally, sort of like picked up on something that the Trump administration has been talking about for, you know, years and years now, um, which is that we need to be investing in these so-called industries of the future. So that's 5G, um, advanced manufacturing, AI, quantum computing, um, you know, and, and it, there, it's kind of interesting because part of it just says we don't even know how much money the government is spending on this stuff. So the first step um, of this legislation is just going to be creating a report about how much money we're even spending in these areas. We sort of know how much we're spending on AI, sort of know how much we're spending on quantum, but on the other area, uh, you know, when it comes to these other important industries, we are, we we just don't even track it. And then beyond that, it's actually a step removed. So it says, you know, we are eventually we want to get to a place where we're spending $10 billion per year on these so-called industries of the future on research and, um, uh, you know, specifically about, um, civilian spending. So, uh, non-defense spending, government spending on, uh, on research in these areas. But, um, before that happens, the the White House is going to have to come up with legislation to, as you said, earmark and figure out exactly where that's going to go and exactly what that is going to look like. So it sort of like sets up, um, uh, it's sort of like the AI resolution, um, but with more money behind it, it sets up what is going to happen, but it, it doesn't exactly come with many. Uh, preconceived notions about what that's going to look like, other than you know, there will be more investment in these areas by 2022, and then by 2025.
0: I feel like in the process of exploring the incoming administration, we've we've also gotten from you a nice window on the sausage getting made, and and I think part of the stuff you cover of how wacky and and roundabout the process of of making policy can be, which is really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's been great to have you on, Emily. Such a pleasure. Uh, yeah, really, this was
1: so fun. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. Going to the topic of of how much happens in this field. While we were recording this, the Texas antitrust lawsuit came down, and uh, Ken Paxton had a somewhat awkward video announcing it that we were kind of took a break to chuckle about, but. Um, we'll have to have you back on sometime because there's always so much to talk about. And, um, thank you again. Now we have
1: to go, now we have to go dive into that lawsuit.
0: Exactly. Go catch the next news cycle. Wow.
1: Wonderful. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you again. I'm Corbin Barthold, internet policy Counsel at tech freedom. Our guest has been Emily Birnbaum at protocol, uh, follow her on protocol to, to stay informed until next time.